Tonight's reading is from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns turns it into nonsense who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhibited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and I will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, let it be built, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue the nations before him and to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you the title of honour. Though you do not acknowledge me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Meet Cyrus, king of Anshan, which you've probably never heard of. King of Persia, which you probably have heard of. Someone who came to be known as king of the four corners of the world. His life can be conveniently summarized a decade at a time. He was probably born in 599 BC. And according to legend, his grandfather had a vision that this baby would overthrow him. So he ordered Cyrus to be killed at birth. But the man charged with the task passed the baby on to a shepherd and his wife, whose baby son was stillborn, and claimed that the dead child was Cyrus. So he grew up. Uh, brought up by a shepherd and his wife, and by the age of 10, it was evident that this was no shepherd's boy. And when his qualities were brought to the attention of his grandfather, he was restored to his real parents. So the man who was charged with killing him uh, suffered a suitable punishment. Why his grandfather decided to spare his life at the age of 10 when he wanted to do away with him when he was a newborn baby isn't altogether clear. Fast forward 30 years, at the age of 40, he takes his place on, the, on his father's throne, as king of Persia, even though his father was still alive at the time. Ten years later, at the age of 50, he has conquered the Median Empire, of which his country was a client kingdom. Ten years after that, in 539 BC, he conquers the Babylonian Empire and brings to an end what was then the world superpower of the day. His exploits are recorded on what is known as the Cyrus Cylinder, which can be seen in the British Museum, and some of us saw it there uh, a year or so ago, a trip organised by Ian Jepps. 
Some people claim that this cylinder is the first declaration of human rights. What is clear is that whereas the Babylonians subjugated people by brute force and terror and had a policy of disempowering them by uprooting them from their homelands and banishing them into exile, Cyrus reversed that policy. He sought to win the hearts and the minds of the people under his rule by sending them back home again and saying, look what a nice guy I am. I'm restoring you to your homeland. The least you can do is be grateful and loyal to me. The Cyrus Cylinder mentions returning people to their settlements again and also restoring their gods to their temples. And it is Cyrus's wish that those gods whom he has repatriated might remember his good deeds and ask for a long life for him. He also claims that he conquered Babylon at the instigation of Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, who was looking for an upright king and was so impressed by Cyrus that he called him by his name, proclaimed him king over everything, took him by the hand and walked by his side as his friend and companion as Cyrus's troops marched peacefully into Babylon to save the city from hardship. The cylinder then is perhaps less a declaration of human rights and more an astute piece of political propaganda as Cyrus claims that Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, was responsible for calling him to march on Babylon and take the city peacefully. And at the same time, it is also a way of securing the support of all the other peoples who became part of his kingdom as a result of his conquest of the world superpower of his day. The Cyrus Cylinder was written sometime between 539 and 530 in the decade after Cyrus conquered Babylon as a celebratory record of his achievement and all that he'd done. But there's a twist. At some point before Cyrus did this, and certainly before the Cyrus Cylinder was written, one of the prophets of the God of Israel, named Isaiah, said, this was precisely what would happen because it was the Lord's plan and purpose. And he was the one who enabled Cyrus to do it all. None of the astrologers, none of the diviners, none of the wise men or the prophets of the Babylonians had seen this coming at all. But Isaiah claims he did. Because it was the Lord who was responsible for doing it. And the Lord told Isaiah what he was intended to do. And the Lord is the God who fulfills the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. As news of Cyrus's shock rise to power spread throughout the world, it's the Lord who says of his servant, the prophet Isaiah, you read it here first. Before it happened, I saw it coming I made it happen. I said it was going to happen. And whereas Cyrus shrewdly attributes his success in conquest to Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, failing to give the Lord, the god of the Jews, the credit that Isaiah says is due to him, in the book of Isaiah, it is the Lord who claims the credit entirely. It's the Lord who took hold of Cyrus's right hand. It's the Lord who subdued nations before him. The Lord who opened gates in front of him, who leveled mountains before him, who opened the secret storehouses and gave him their treasure. It was the Lord who summoned him by name, even though Cyrus didn't know him or acknowledge him. 
It was the Lord who strengthened him and bestowed on him a title of honour. It is the Lord who said of Cyrus, he is my shepherd who will accomplish everything I want him to do. The Lord even says, he is my anointed one. He is my Messiah. He is my Christ. He is the one who will rebuild Jerusalem. He is the one who will relay the foundations of my temple. And while Cyrus didn't personally do that, there is no doubt it would never have happened without his policy of repatriation and his giving the authority and the finance for the rebuilding of the temple of the Lord back into Jerusalem. How do we respond to this? At one level, I guess it's, it's, it's possible to see Isaiah's prophecy as being on the same level as the Cyrus Cylinder, a bit of political propaganda looking to trump Cyrus's claim that Marduk was responsible for his victory with the claim that actually it was the Lord behind all of this. But the two aren't quite on the same level. Firstly, Isaiah is a prophecy, not a record of achievements. And whenever these words in Isaiah were written, they were written before the Cyrus Cylinder. So it's not that Isaiah is picking up the Cyrus Cylinder and saying, well, this is good, if, if we take this and adapt it, we can say the Lord did this. No, that's not how it worked. This prophecy is probably made before the events of which it speaks. Though there are, of course, sceptics who say, oh, it must have been written after the event. And I guess one way or another, it's impossible to prove finally. Yet it is one of the great strengths of Isaiah to have foreseen and foretold God's restoration of his people at a time when that seemed quite impossible. And at times, the prophet Isaiah seems to verge on the saying, I told you so. Said it would happen, and it is happening. Look, this is God's doing. That's a claim that only has validity if in some way, shape or form, it was predicted and Isaiah saw it coming. The Lord declares that he is the one who directs history. None of the other gods have the ability or the power to foresee the future. But God does, because he is the one who determines the future. Isaiah's prophecy puts it on a different level from the political propaganda of Cyrus's cylinder. And then, of course, you, from our perspective in the 21st century, you look back and you can't help feeling that the Lord's claim to be responsible for Cyrus's victory, has greater validity than Cyrus's own claim that Marduk did it. These days, Marduk is the name of a black metal band from Sweden. But nobody worships Marduk. Nobody gives him credit for anything. Nobody believes that Marduk is a god who is real or he is, is, is to be honoured or served in any way, shape or form. He is history. But the Lord, the God who claimed he would do this through Isaiah before it happened, the God who is given the credit for this fantastic event in history in the book of Isaiah, he is still worshipped and honoured universally today, not just here in Brighton Road Baptist Church, but around the world. Because the true God, the living God, the one God, who does direct the events of history, who is sovereign of all, continues to be worshipped and honoured and recognised as the one God today. So Isaiah's claim has stood the test of history in as much as the false gods have fallen by the wayside, 
The true God is still there now. And then there's the the flagrant audacity of Isaiah's claim compared with that of Cyrus. Because Cyrus' claim that Marduk was the God who gave him the victory made political sense. It promoted the legitimacy of his rule over the Babylonian kingdom where Marduk was worshipped. But to give the Lord the credit for all this, that shows extraordinary hubris, really. After all, who was this Lord? Who was the God of the Jews? Who was the God of Israel? Israel was a tiny, insignificant nation whose land had been conquered and reconquered. Their people exiled, the temple of their God completely trashed. They were nobodies. And by the state of their fortunes, their God was a nobody as well. Didn't seem to amount to very much either. Where was his temple? Where was his empire? Where were his armies? Where was his power? There was no sign of it at all. Yet part of Isaiah's purpose was to open the eyes of God's people to the greatness of the Lord to whom they belonged. With their defeats, with their exile into Babylon, with the destruction of the temple, it was perhaps inevitable that for many of them, their vision of God had dwindled to the point, it was, to the point where it was as small as their own sense of their personal powerlessness and insignificance. We're nobodies. We don't matter. We don't count. And if if we don't count and we don't matter, then, you know, what what is there left for us to believe in in terms of of God who who says that we matter to him? And if God has left us here in Babylon like this, does does that mean God doesn't care? Or is he powerless? Or, Or what's going on? Isaiah says to them, you have made your God too small. The defeat of Israel did not mean the defeat of Israel's God. They didn't leave the Lord behind in the ruins of the temple when they left for Babylon decades before. Their God was bigger than that. The Lord is their redeemer. The Lord is the one who formed them in the womb. The Lord is the God who single-handedly created everything without anybody to help him, stretched out the heavens, who alone spread out the earth. Without him, nothing would exist. Without him, you yourselves would not exist. And it's the Lord who decides and decrees what will happen. The God whose word of command, let there be light, kick-started the whole creation process. And whose word of command on successive days brought the world and its inhabitants into being. This same God now declares of Jerusalem, it will be inhabited. A word of prophecy, a word of command. He says of the towns of Judah, let them be rebuilt. Who says of their ruins, I myself personally will restore them. The God who decreed and named and called the world into being now decrees the restoration of his people. And it is this God, says Isaiah, who takes charge of Cyrus, summons him by name, 
brings him to a position of world influence and power in, in a phenomenally short space of time and says, I'm doing this for the sake of my people. I do this for the sake of Israel, my servant, and Jacob, my chosen. Even though Cyrus has no idea who the Lord is, as is apparent from his words on the cylinder, the Lord says, I will give you the strength to carry out my purposes. So that from the rising of the sun to its setting, everyone may know that the God of Israel is the Lord. He is the Lord and there is no other. And the claim is stupendous. The changing of world empires, the bringing down of one kingdom and the raising up of another. God says, I do all this for your sake, my people, so that you can go home again, so that my temple and your towns will be rebuilt. And by telling everybody that I'm doing this, so that the whole world will know that I alone am the Lord. When things go wrong, that doesn't mean to say that the Lord has lost control of events, because he alone is the one who creates the light and the darkness, who brings prosperity and creates disaster. He, the Lord, does all of this, and he is sovereign over everything. It's a challenging thing to take on board when you look at a world where so much is going wrong, but Isaiah's claim stands firm. God is in charge of it all. And his purposes will be fulfilled and cannot ever be overruled or frustrated. We need to hear that message today because we live in a culture where as the church we are increasingly marginalised, where sometimes it feels as if we are in some kind of religious exile, where we are disregarded and sidelined and, and people poke fun at us as if we've got nothing serious to say and society as a whole takes very little account of the Lord. But the message of Isaiah is still, do not base your vision of God on your own sense of your smallness or your insignificance. Do not diminish God and bring him down to your level because things aren't going well, because you feel small or disregarded. Don't make the mistake of thinking that God must be in the same boat. Recognise that you only exist. Recognise that the world as a whole only exists because of the Lord. This God is your Redeemer. His sovereignty knows no limits. So let the true greatness of the God who is your Redeemer to whom you belong, let that inform and expand your faith and trust in him. Don't let your faith diminish to the size of your circumstances. Let the vision of the greatness and the sovereignty and the uniqueness of God inform and develop and expand your faith. If we were to know that God is sovereign over all, my suspicion is that we would be much more prayerful than we are now. We would rely on God far more 
and express that independence on prayer than we actually do. We should allow the true greatness of who God is to fill our minds and our hearts to the point where we can trust him for the outcome to the situations that we face. And if we trust him, then we will in confidence commit ourselves and our needs and those we love into his hands. That doesn't mean that everything will always turn out well or how we expect. But it does mean that we acknowledge that we belong to the God who is sovereign over all and who wants us to trust him and who ultimately is faithful because he never abandons his people. It is his purpose that everybody should know that he is the Lord and there is no other. So as the people who've gathered here tonight to worship him, I guess that's a lesson that if anybody is to learn it, we should learn it. The God you worship is the Lord. Your creator, your redeemer, the ruler of absolutely everything. Who doesn't just direct the outcome of your life. He directs the outcome of world history. He is in control. You can trust him because what he says he will do, he delivers on it. This is our God. There is no other. And you belong to him every day and for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, think of uh, your servant, the prophet Isaiah, putting his whole reputation on the line where he, where he says, this is what is going to happen because God has shown me. And then having to rely on you to deliver on that. Thank you for his faithfulness. For the ability he had to hear your word. His readiness to proclaim it and to take his stand on it. Thank you that you are a God who does deliver on your promises. And we can look back and see your faithfulness and we worship you for it. It's hard now where we are in a situation where we can't see what is going to happen. Sometimes we can't recognise what your purposes are. Sometimes we can't understand what you're doing. But help us to trust you. To honour you as the only God who is sovereign over all. To believe that your purposes cannot be frustrated or overturned. And so to live confidently for you in a world where so much is going wrong. Help us to honour you, the God who will put it all right through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord, the one to whom every knee will bow and of whom every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We bow the knee now. We make that confession now. Jesus is Lord. 
We honour you. Help us to trust you and live for you. Amen.